The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. About king scallops of Scotland and sea scallops of Maine. And my guests today are Skylar Bayer, who is a Ph.D. candidate in marine biology at the University of Maine, based at the Darling Marine Center in Walpole, Maine. Hello, Skyler. Hi, Rob. Hi. And my other guest is Bryce Stewart. He's a marine ecologist and fisheries biologist at the University of York in England. Hello, Bryce. Hi, Rob. Thanks for inviting me on the show. Well, thanks for making the evening calls. It's like 3 in the afternoon here, but it's a bit later where you are, isn't it? Uh, Yeah, it's about 8 o'clock in the evening here, so uh, I'm just working back late. Well, we're we're thrilled to have you on the phone. Thank you, thank you. Uh, Skylar, um, there was this report of two, in Maine, two buckets of scallop parts went missing from a parking lot of a convenience store on Mount Desert Island. And the next thing I knew, you were on the Stephen Colbert report. What, what, What was going on? What's the story there? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so that that happened, um, ooh, says like November 2012, so coming up on four years ago, um, but then it aired in March of 2013, but uh, I was working with a fisherman on a side project trying to get scallop uh, gonads um, to see if they were changing over the season, the spawning season up at Mount Desert Island. I wanted to see if that pattern was different than... Uh, back where I work near Damerscotta. And um, he saw a car with University of Maine license plates um, and put the, the buckets of gonads in that car, and off they went with an unsuspecting driver. And <laughs> then we had a, a mystery to solve about where they went, who had the car, and how to get them back. And um, So wait, so Andy, you arrived later, you arrived later, and there was... Andy, but no scallops, right? And and so, what happened? Right, well, so, I mean, I pulled into the other end of the parking lot where he was expecting me, and he was dropping his kid off at a doctor's appointment directly across the street, so he was in a hurry. <laughs> so he's like, oh, that must be the car, I'll just put him in there. And no one locks their doors in Maine, which is sort of another reason why it's a very... Um, main story, you know, of course no one locks yeah. their doors in a, in a um, gas station parking lot. And so when I, I saw him across the street and I was like, hey, he's like, well, didn't you get the, the buckets? And I was like, no. He's like, I put them in your car. And I was like, 
No, you didn't. <laughs> and and the car was gone by then. And so um, his wife called the police station and radio stations, and um, and then the newspaper picked it up because it was such a silly thing, you know, missing buckets of scallop guts. And then the Associated Press wrote a thing about it, which landed in papers all the way in like Seattle in Austin, Texas, and San Francisco, and um, then I wrote about it on my blog, and the thing I revealed on my blog was that it was gonads, not just any kind of guts. Um, and so the producers of the Colbert Report basically... Well, wait, wait, wait. For- we haven't got this. We haven't got oh. you. Ben returned you. You're, you know, they, how did they get found and returned to you? Yeah, it all kind of happened. This all happened, like, within a two-day period, but basically... Um, uh, the the posting that actually went on Facebook too from the fisherman's wife uh, was shared enough times that the the woman driving the car who is a professor at the University of Maine saw it on her friend her friend's Facebook wall or something and then so she ended up calling Andy's wife directly. What was funny about it was that I had contacted the university through all like the normal. Uh, modes of communication, like who took out the car, I contacted the motor pool, and no one knew anything, but Facebook saved the day. And so she called yeah. Andy, and then she got in touch with um, with me, and then um, I actually, a friend of mine who's up at the Orono campus picked them up, so that's how I got them back. Um, and then, safe. yeah, the, the Colbert Report people, they just look for funny things on the internet all day that are real, <laughs> so they look at the newspaper clippings, like that Associated Press article, and then they found me and they contacted me and we agreed to do the piece. So that's how that happened. Well, it was quite a spin. It wasn't exactly true. I mean, you know, you had Andy saying outrageous stuff. <laughs> and you're portrayed as uh, the Doctor of Doom or something? By the Lonely Lady <laughs> Scientist, yeah, which is a sign on my door now so that the interns won't forget, yeah. Well, Colbert accuses you of, of creating alternate life forms or scallop man yeah. or something. You've been a lot of yeah, fun with those scallop man. One of my yeah. side projects, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So no, if people they, want to see, okay, oh, so we have a side project now. You're creating scallop men. Yeah, no, I'm kidding. But yeah, um, I actually, no, <laughs> I do have a, a side project on scallop genetics, but um, that's a different story entirely, and it's pretty new. So. But, um, so yeah. if people want to see it, they just um, go to Skyler, S-K-Y-L-A-R, uh, Bayer, B-A-Y-E-R, Colbert, and I think it'll come up, or maybe Colbert Scallops or something. Yeah, but it's a and great especially Scallop Gonad, I, you know, usually it's one of the first searches that, uh, or sorry, yeah. one of the first things that comes up when you search my name, so, yep. So tell us a little bit about your research in the scallop reproduction and how it relates to, you know, the taking of the fishing of scallops and stuff. Yeah. Um, so my actual research, <laughs> uh, I, yeah. I work a lot with scallop fertilization dynamics. And what I mean by fertilization is sperm and egg meeting and developing into an embryo and then eventually a scallop larvae or baby, which then hopefully becomes um, a scallop someday that we might like to eat. And to just back up a little bit about the importance of of reproduction in um, any marine species is that, you know, where do fish come from? They come from the ocean, but fish come from other fish, right? And the only way you can make more fish is if you let them have sex. 
Yeah. <laughs> and same goes for scallops um, and any other animal. And the most common way for these animals to reproduce is called broadcast spawning. And that means that they release their egg and sperm into the water column where hopefully they mix. And so, so that's great, but what people wonder about is if, if you change the density um, or how close these animals are near one another when they're spawning, does it increase or does it reduce the number of eggs that get fertilized? And that's a lot of what my research, my dissertation is focused on, um, is that kind of question. And that's relevant to fishing pressure if you've if you fish an area really hard and there aren't very many scallops left or they're really far apart from each other, will they be able to reproduce? And if you leave them alone for a while and their density increases or their numbers in an area increase, does that actually um, increase the number of eggs that get fertilized and therefore more scallops down the line? Um, and so that's sort of in a nutshell what my research for the last five years has been about. So the common sense is that well, if you have them close together, they'll be more successful because it's all, you know, the mix is right there. Um, but right. is that what you're finding in the research? So um, I've had one of my chapters published, and that one where we had scallops hanging in nets, which is not how scallops are normally found in nature. You know, they're they're on the bottom um, usually, um, and in those so they're more crowded. What? They're more um, crowded than the nets. Well, in the nets, the way that we designed a net experiment was so that they sort of simulated a range of densities. So in some nets, yes, there were a lot of them, and so they were what would be more crowded. And then in other nets, there were you know very few of them. So cool. we sort of ranged the amount, but the same size net, basically. And so we, we had three different density treatments or numbers of scallops per net. And in the most crowded one, which was pretty unrealistic in terms of densities. Like, you probably would never find scallops that high, um, high density in nature, had the, the highest fertilization level. So we found that density was really important in that experiment um, in terms of increasing the percentage of eggs fertilized. But um, a paper I'm working on right now um, where we did a much more realistic simulation where we had scallops... Um, on the seafloor in two different places at two very different population densities, we don't see that same effect. And so that kind of points to the, to the fact that it's a much more complicated story and we're still trying to figure out what all those parts are that influence um, fertilization success in these animals. Yeah, Mother Nature is pretty unexpected, especially in the ocean, you know, in terms of, you know, what are prevailing factors and things, I would think. Yeah. Yeah, well, and, you know, these kinds of, um, just to give you a sense of the, the things we're considering, when we think about fertilization success, we're considering um, uh, environmental factors affecting the adults, whether or not they're well synchronized with each other with release, how fast the currents are, if the animals are choosing um, particular times in the tide to release, um, you know, things like rocks on the bottom, uh, nutrition, phytoplankton availability may influence um, the adult scallop spawning. Um, they, they, I could go on and on, but there, there's just a lot of different factors to consider. And temperature, we think, is really important for triggering um, scallops to spawn. Um, and the, 
we found some evidence of maybe lunar trends uh, affecting it, although how how that works is unclear, but there might be a pattern, at least where I'm doing my research, that affects their reproductive timing. So as far as temperature, would increasing temperature be good or bad for spawning? Um, for the species that I'm looking at, in the place where I am, in, in the inshore of Maine, because remember, there's a giant sea scallop fishery offshore for most of the eastern United States, and so the animals I'm working with are in inshore Maine, um, partly because the temperatures there are cool enough for them to, to be okay living in pretty shallow water. Um, and so what we think is that after the temperature peaks in the summer and then drops initially, um, mm. that's when we tend to see them spawn um, in our experiments. And then when we do gonad indices, um, we actually, so what we do with gonad indices, and this relates back to the Colbert report, is where you, you cut out the gonad and you weigh it and you weigh the rest of the body and you see how the proportion of the body weight, the total body weight, um, how much of that is the gonad and how much how that changes over time. And um, so what we found in our area of Maine is that it tends to happen at the end of the summer, but after that, that first drop in temperature at the, as the season kind of starts winding down. But that said, on Georgian Bank, um, there's been a couple of papers published recently showing that there's two spawning periods, one in the spring and one in the fall. So um, it may not be a completely clear picture in terms of what's triggering them and where where that trigger is geographically. Well, it sounds like the fall trigger comes with a drop in temperature. So if mm-hmm. the summer That's heat we were to be extended longer in, into the, the fall, that might delay the spawning. Right. Yeah, potentially. Yeah. And that said, one one year that we were running experiments, we saw really early spawning. Actually, 2012. I don't know if you remember that being... It was a really warm year for the East Coast and Gulf of Maine. It was sort of an anomaly. And we yeah, the saw... Yeah, molted early that year. Right, Exactly. And so we actually observed in our experiments that year, scouts responding in July, and if you, which is really early, right? Mm-hmm. So what we think happened is that some of them got confused, and there was um, some sort of drop in temperature triggered by what we don't know in July, and they responded to that instead of the the later drop in August or September, which is where we when when we usually see it. So. Um, that's what we... That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we don't think, looking at that data set, like, it looks like some of them spawn, but maybe not all of them. Um, it's a little unclear, and, and that's also from looking at how the gonad indices dropped out over time as well. So, um, they're, they're a curious animal. (laughs) Well, they sure are. They're pretty simple, a big muscle and then gonads, but, um... And lots Amazing. of eyes. Lots of eyes. Oh, lots of eyes, right. Yeah. Not just the blue-eyed scallops. It's, do all scallops have eyes? Uh, or, as I mean, far as well, I second. know. You're, you're talking about, you have two scallops, and you're mostly working with the, the uh, giant sea scallops. Right. And then us American eaters, we also know about the bay scallop, um, like from Nantucket and stuff. So what's the difference between those two scallops? Um, there are a bunch of differences, but, you know, the main thing that's, that's obvious initially is giant sea scallops are a lot larger 
um, than bay scallops. They can also live a lot longer. I think it's estimated the average uh, lifespan is around a decade, potentially. Um, but some people have reported counting rings that make you know, make samples like 20 years old. Bay scallops are much smaller and only live, I think, 18 to 24 months. Um, so they're a lot tinier. They're also hermaphrodites. And giant sea scallops are gonochoristic where they have separate sexes. Sometimes they're hermaphrodites, but they're mostly males and females. Um, and what's actually kind of cool about most scallops in general is if you look, you can, you can look inside because they gape open, right? And you can actually yeah. see the gonads so you can sex them. Um, at least the, the species I've worked with. And that's nice because most shellfish, uh, or most bivalves, sorry, you can't do that. You can't, um, no. you can't peek in because their, their mantle is completely sealed, um, along the edge of their, their valves. So, well, isn't so that nice enough to display them, though? What's that? That's great. Isn't it nice of those giant sea scallops to display their sexuality like that for you to check out? Yeah, yeah. And they do have very big gonads. I mean, they make up sometimes 30% of their body weight, which if you can imagine what that would be like on a person, it's pretty insane. So they're, they're very fecund. Um, and, and then the other thing, back to the eyes, giant sea scallops have black eyes, and then um, bay scallops have blue eyes, which, you know, they're kind of famous oh. for. Uh, I think there's a poem about, you know, the bluest eyes in the sea or something. I don't know what color the eyes are for um, king scallops, so maybe we can find out later. <laughs> um, <laughs> hey, Bryce, but they, what color are the eyes of king scallops? They're, I mean, they're kind of blue, but they're not as blue as your bay scallops. I think they have the bluest eyes. Okay. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break and be right back, and, and uh, Bryce is going to tell us more about the king scallops in Scotland when we come back. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforoceans.org. That is www.donate, the number four, oceans.org. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners 
partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI Actions and Events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI Eco Steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with Skylar Bayer and Bryce Stewart about scallops and Skylar. Um, well, how, Skylar, how can people um, tune in to what you're doing and maybe contact you? Um, well, it depends what their social media uh, involvement is. But um, first off, I have a blog called Strictly Fish Wrap, um, which is at strictlyfishwrap.com. That's S T R I C T L Y fishwrap.com, um, and there's a contact form if you want to email me on, on that blog. But I'm also on Twitter, which you can also access through the blog, um, and I have a Facebook page, but I'm more active on Twitter um, than Facebook. Thank you. Uh, so we were talking about the eyes of scallops, and we're talking today about three species of scallops, the giant sea scallop, uh, which is much of the American fisheries, and then the little bay scallop, which is a, a, a small, short-lived scallop, and the uh, king scallop over in the U.K. And uh, just before we left, we agreed that uh, the little bay scallops have the prettiest blue eyes. Uh, Skylar, tell us some more about eyes and scallops. Yeah, so I can tell you uh, a little bit um, about what I know. My friend, uh, Dr. Dan Spizer, who's at University of Southern California, not California, Carolina, uh, studies the evolution of the eyes. And a couple of things that he told us at the conference last year is that they kind of defy a lot of the, the normal rules. Like they're not paired and they're not on a head. They're all along the mantle. They actually add eyes as they grow. And he's been doing some experiments that showed that the pupils actually dilate. I actually sent him specimens so he could test this on Placopectin, Magellanicus, or the giant sea scallop. Um, and so, and they know that they can detect particles in the water columns. And they also kind of have a little bit of a brain. I mean, it's not like what we would consider a brain, but there's sort of a, a neural group there. And uh, his lab is trying to understand, I think, what it does and how it connects all those eyes, because each eye is connected back to that that brain. So. Oh my goodness! 
Yeah, we don't yeah. think of scallops as having brains or mollusks as having brains. Right. Oh, yeah. I guess we do with octopuses and stuff, but... Um, yeah. Who knew from scallops? I know. Um, it's really incredible. No one knows really what they're for, like, you know, if there's a real reason. So that's what his lab, I think, is going to be focused on for a while. So, Bryce, they don't have legs. How do they get around? Well, actually, that is pretty cool. Uh, scallops can actually swim, which a lot of people don't realize. So if you ever want a bit of a laugh, put into Google scallop swimming and watch some of the videos. <laughs> so what they actually do is they open their shells and they effectively bite at the water and then it shoots out backwards from the side of their shells and propels them along. So you'll see them lift off the bottom and make these series of sort of biting moves, a bit like a Pac-Man, if, if you remember those from the old video games. Um, and depending on the species, they can move anything from sort of a couple of meters to uh, even sort of, you know, 30 or 40 feet at one time. Wow. It's almost like jet propulsion or something. Effectively, it is, yeah. They're, u they're using, uh, you know, water propulsion to get them along. But, you know, a lot of people think that they, they shoot backwards um, like an octopus would, but actually they move forward. So, as I said, they're sort of, they're biting at the water to move themselves along, which is very cool to watch, actually. Yeah, I didn't realize that. I just assumed they kind of danced around like castanets, but that's really, <laughs> really interesting that they kind yeah. of bite their way forward. <laughs> yeah. Um, so tell us about the king scallop of, um, of the UK. So, uh, yeah, so the king scallop, it's, it's quite similar in a way to your, um, your giant scallop. Uh, I think it probably has a different accent, but, you know, don't quote <laughs> yeah. me on that. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's grows to a similar size, so, um, uh, actually, I think, Skylar, you, you came and saw the biggest scallop ever found when we were at this conference in Ireland uh, a year or two ago. It's actually up on the wall in a fish and chip shop there. So it's, it's almost 10 inches across, um, and I think it was about 22 years old. So that's also about the maximum size for your, um, your giant scallops. But most yep. of the ones that we, that we fish for over here, it's controlled by a minimum legal landing size. Um, depending on where you are, it's between sort of four or five inches across. Uh, and they'll get to that size in maybe four or five years. Again, it, it very much depends where you are. So the range of them extends actually all the way down to Spain, but there's, there's big populations of France, and uh, they can get to that size um, in just two years, which is phenomenal. Whereas up in the north of Scotland or even in Norway, it, you know, it's taking them five, six years perhaps to get to the same size. Yeah, I've seen that. The, the ones up in the, the highlands, are they need to be like five years to be, you know, the, the big size, looking at the range. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. And it's so, it's well, just all down record holder. Oh, I'm sorry. The record holder, though, was not found in the Galloway pub. Where was it from? <laughs> Actually, it was found um, off the coast of Western Ireland. And uh, there was a, a scholar biologist. Uh, he's retired now. 
Um, and he found about half a dozen of these giant scallops, you know, that have, have never really been seen anywhere else. And he wrote a paper, like, speculating as to why they'd got so big. But I don't, I don't think he could actually explain it. I don't think, you know, anyone could really. Um, well, he managed, but, to, they managed to elude the, the scallop dredges and the scallop divers. Yeah, I mean, that's it. You know, the one thing about the scallop fishery in the UK is it has grown phenomenally over the last uh, decade in particular. Um, it's more than doubled. And, you know, in fact, really before the 70s, it was very small scale. Um, and so what you had back in those days was a lot, of, a lot more scallops getting to their... Uh, you know, their maximum potential size up around the sort of six, seven, eight inch size. Um, whereas nowadays, really, uh, on the heavily fished grounds, you know, within a year of them getting to that legal minimum size, they'll be caught. So you don't tend to see many scallops more than sort of five or six years old on the main fishing grounds just because the, the fishing pressure is so intense. Now, the main fishing grounds are going to be, like, scallops have a preferred habitat, right? And so, what's sure. that, and is that the best place to look for them? Yeah, so, I mean, they're, they're quite sort of variable in, in where they can live, um, but the places that they like the most and where you would naturally see the most scallops, uh, they have... They're kind of sheltered, but they also have a good current flow. Um, but what's a real feature is the seabed itself. So they're, they're perfect um, uh, seabed, if you like, is, is quite rough, almost gravel-like seabed. And I think it's something to do with the way that that disrupts how the water flows across the surface and helps them to feed. Um, and so, you know, if you're diving, you will... You'll be swimming along. Perhaps if it's quite sandy, you won't see very many. And then all of a sudden, you'll, you'll come across an area where the seabed changes and there will be a great big patch of scallops in there. So they're, you know, they're very selective in that respect. That's really interesting because I thought they preferred sandy bottoms and you know, they could bury into it a bit so you'd see these dimples where there should be a scallop. Sure. I mean, it's... Yeah, they can live in sandy areas, but I think it's, it's just getting that balance right. So if the sand is too fine, or if it even starts to become a bit muddy, then that mm. fine sediment basically, uh, you know, when it's stirred up, it can clog up their, their gills and, and their ability to feed. And so actually that's quite detrimental to them. So they, no, they don't really live in sort of rocky areas. They do need to be able to bury themselves, as you said. So particularly the, the king scallop, if you, if you look at one from the side, their bottom shell is quite curved. It's, uh, it's convex, and the top is flat. And so what they sort of do is they, you know, they set, after they've been doing one of these swimming episodes, which they don't tend to do unless something's disturbed them, um, then they'll they'll sort of settle back down on the seabed and they'll effectively wiggle themselves into the sediment uh, until that flat top valve is just level with the seabed. And then they'll open it 
just a little bit, enough to let the water in, and so they're able to feed and breathe. Um, and so, actually, when you're again when you're diving, uh, they can sometimes be very difficult to spot because they'll be just all you will see was a little sort of semicircle in the seabed, and you realise that's the edge of the sculpture, but it can be completely covered otherwise in um, the sand and gravel. That is cool. They keep a real low profile down there they, in the water. It, totally. That is a great way to explain it. Yeah, sure. And so you, there's a big industry for fishing prawns as well as king scallops. And the prawns, they prefer a muddier habitat so that there's some differentiation between the two preferred places, you think? Yeah, very much so. Um, so the prawns like to burrow into the, into the mud. Um, and so effectively, you don't see the two species in the same place. Um, but one of, you know, you're talking about the fishery in Scotland. One of the things you have here is, uh, or there, I'm not in Scotland at the moment, but I work up there, is, is a very uh, varied geology. I mean, many of you have seen sort of the movies of, of Scotland, uh, you know, and the sort of rugged mountains, um, and the uh, the locks and all the rest, and so in just one of these small locks or, or inlets, you know, you can have very deep water, and you can have a whole range of different sediments. Often in the middle, in the deepest part, it will be muddy, and that's where you'll find the prawns. And then a bit towards the edge, you'll have the gravel area and the scallops, um, and then perhaps right on the edge of the locks, you know. Um, It'll be boulders, and there'll be other species living amongst that. Yeah, I, I think um, some of the demersal fish, like cod and, and haddock and hake and pollock, kind of like the, the harder bottoms. Um, yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, it's and, important and, that... No, go ahead. Well, the other thing with, with both fish and scallops is that they do change their, um, their preferences as they grow up. So uh, one thing that scallops do, uh, like, for example, you know, people will be familiar with mussels being stuck onto the rock or stuck onto a pier or whatever it is by their, that bissel thread, that's that very strong uh, sort of wiry material. So actually when scallops are born, so when they've got together, like Scala's been telling us, um, and they, you know, they release their eggs and sperm and the little baby scallop floats around in the ocean um, normally for anything from kind of four to six weeks. What is really critical is where it ends up at the end of that period when it's ready to settle on the seabed. And if it's ended up in a place that's not suitable, so for example, the muddy area, um, basically it won't survive. Uh, because of the, you know the the things that we talked about, it will just be, it will just get swamped with sediment, and it, they're very very delicate at that stage. But the other thing that they do is they're actually quite like mussels as well, and they have a bissel thread where they actually attach to something when they first come out of the plankton. And the reason they do that is they they want to be above the seabed so that they're having clean water delivered to them, and also so they're not being eaten by crabs or starfish. And so 
during that very early life history phase, uh, when the scallops are only, you know, a month or two old, it's crucial that you have something on the seabed that they can stick onto that, uh, you know, enables them to be a little bit raised off the bottom. And so this can be things like, like seaweed, like uh, um, uh, types of animals called hydroids and bryzoans. So these are all things growing off the seabed. And what the scallop will do is stick onto those and it will just get through that first critical phase again just for a month or two and once it's it's toughened up a little bit then it will release and settle down onto the actual onto the seabed itself and and start its its uh journey to adulthood at that point at that point it's big enough to be able to pack man around to be able to um i guess move its shell instead of having to be yeah tied down. i mean there's they're still pretty vulnerable, but obviously, you know, evolution has uh, selected this strategy to um, be the most effective trade-off between, you know, risk and opportunity, effectively. Yeah. Um, so they're still quite vulnerable at that size. But one, one thing they do have on their side when they're small is they're really good swimmers. So with the big old scallops you know, a bit like people, you know, they get to a certain age and they don't like to get off the sofa too often, uh, off the couch. But, but you know, the young ones are buzzing around like uh, little kids and <clears throat> that keeps them safe to a certain extent so they can escape starfish and crabs. You know, this, the, the crab makes a move and suddenly, where's the scallop gone? You know, and, it, and it's behind it or it may even, like, end up on top of it. Uh, and it, it's just, getting out of the way at that sort of last moment is often enough. That's, that's amazing. So I would think the challenge for the fisheries is to have the different fisheries work the appropriate areas for the, the target species, be they scallops or prawns or bottom fish. Yeah, sure. So <clears throat> this is a, you've, you've really hit on a critical issue for UK fisheries there. So we have this situation, um, I guess it's politely called gear conflict. So it's, it's clashes between the different types of fishing. So, you know, and Scotland's a, a real hotbed of this. Um, so you have what are called the static fishermen. So these are, are scallop divers, uh, guys putting down um, pots or creels, I guess. I don't know what you call them in the States, but traps for um, crabs and lobsters and prawns. And so these are things that, you know, you'll, you'll put out a string of these on the seabed. They'll sit there for a day or two, and then you'll haul them up, and you, you might relay them back in the same place um, uh, or move them a little bit. But anyway, they're basically static. They're not moving around very much. And then aside from that, you have the mobile fishers. So these are the guys trawling scallop dredges or uh, trawling um, for prawns as well with nets. And basically those two gear types and, or methods are, are fairly incompatible uh, because if you tow some dredges where somebody's got all their lobster pots, you know, you're going to catch them up. You're going to possibly uh, actually pull, pull the boys underwater that you've damaged the gear. You might lose it altogether. 
Um, and, and likewise, you know, clearly if you're a scallop diver, the last thing in the world you want is uh, some dredges coming through. Um, yeah. Oh, my you goodness. Know, Bryce, yeah, I have I, to interrupt I, I, you because we have to take a quick break, and we're going to no come problem. back and learn more about the moving gear and the stationary gear of the Scottish fisheries. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be right back. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforoceans.org. That is www.donate4oceans.org. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking about the King Scallops of Scotland and the UK, and my guest is Bryce Stewart from the University of York, and also with me is uh, Skylar Bayer from the Darling Marine Center up in Walpole, Maine, part of the University of Maine up there. And um, Bryce was just explaining that 
you know, it, it's not as simple as having scallop fishermen fish over there and where the scallops are and the prawn fishermen go where the prawns are, the prawns wanting finer sediment, se- uh, sediment. I don't know about the sentiments about this, but the sediments <laughs> and, and But the problem is, is that you have different fishing techniques. As Bryce was explaining, we have stationary, like lowering down a lobster pot or a creel pot is what they call the prawn pots in Scotland. So uh, we have lobstermen here. We have creelers in, in the U.K., um, They've got stationary gear, and in that mix, we would put the scallop divers as, as more stationary. And then you've got the draggers and the dredgers coming through, and so you've got collisions going on. And um, what do we do, Bryce? Well, what do we do? Uh, you know, I think personally I'm in favor <clears throat> of, of what's called spatial management. So you effectively are creating zones for the different sectors to, to operate um, in isolation. And so you can do that in different ways. You could maybe, you know, have some areas that are permanently just for divers and, and, and uh, static gear and some areas that are permanently just for the dredges. Um, or you can do it at different times of the year. But one of the right. things that's hap- happened in Scotland recently, which is Somewhat moving us towards this system is uh, the government have, have recently declared a network of marine protected areas, about 30 of them altogether around the coast of Scotland, and well, some inshore and some offshore, about half and half. Um, now, these marine protected areas are not fully protected, uh, so most of them apart from a few small places, you're still allowed to fish. But what they've done in those areas is, you know, they've certainly in in some of the, you know, the most valuable ones to conservation, they've stopped scallop dredging and and prawn trawling. And so what that's done has actually created places for the divers and the creelers to operate without being disturbed. Um, And so this is actually a really positive development. And I think, you know, that's definitely the way to go. Um, The the other angle to all of this, of course, is just looking at the total environmental effects. And so certainly if you're a diver or if you're a creeler, your activity is not really disturbing the seabed at all. you know, certainly as a diver, you're literally just picking off the scallops that you want to take back and sell. And you can even be quite selective about that and just take the biggest ones. Or one thing that I know some divers do is actually, you know, they, they collect some of the smaller ones, but they don't, they don't bring them back. They'll put them somewhere on the seabed where they know they grow fast um, and let them grow up to a decent size before they actually catch them. So they're almost ranching the sea. Yes. But, you know, fundamentally, you know, that is a good way to go because you're increasing the yield you get from each individual. You're letting it stay in the sea and breed. Uh, if you put them close together, like Skylar's talking about, you know, obviously they, 
they uh, they breed more successfully. Um, and so, you know, if you compare that to, say, uh, scarlet dredging, which, you know, is much less selective, and the dredges themselves, with the ones we use over here, have these big teeth that dig into the sediment. Uh, and so they really can do quite a lot of damage to what's growing there. And so if you remember back to what I was saying about the young scallops needing that complex um, habitat on the seabed, uh, you know, algae and hydroids and bryzoans, that three-dimensional structure, an area that's been dredged a lot will have lost that. And so actually, you know, it's difficult for the stocks to replenish in those areas. And so I'm really encouraged by what they, what they are doing in Scotland, which is, you know, they're not, no, they're not banning dredging everywhere because it's actually the mainstay of the industry. You know, it's the, about 95% of scallops are caught by dredges, but uh, they're protecting some of the more complex, more biodiverse inshore areas. And that's, you know, from my point of view, that's a win-win scenario because you're, you're putting in a positive conservation measure, but you're also helping the commercial fishery as well because you've got, obviously, the young scallops in there. As they grow up, they will move out and become available to the fishery, and the scallops that stay in there will breed, and because they're close together, they'll breed successfully, and then their young will spread out as well into the surrounding areas and keep the fishery going. Yes, that's really interesting. It tends to be overblown in that, you know, in the marine, I understand that, because of marine protected areas, the closures to scallop dredgers has been about 2% of Scottish fishing waters. So, you know, just a little bit is really important to um, those breeding young, all those young adolescent scallops you're talking about. Plus, sure. it's not a huge hardship. There's almost like, well, I know it is. It's, it's, you know, if there's any, you know, they have to push back at anything because it could be the it's beginning of the end. And so it's too bad that such emotions get cooked up into such a small cutback in the fishery. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, it was very, very controversial, this move. And, um, for example, uh, a couple of hundred fishermen marched on the Scottish Parliament uh, in protest. So, you know, even that small level of protection, what's, what is difficult always with these measures is they will affect some people quite a lot. So if you're a fisherman who lives right next to where they've put in a protected area, it's going to have a big effect on you personally. But for everyone else who lives elsewhere, no, it, it's insignificant. Uh, so, it's it, you know, that's the real hard part about all of this is, is getting over those individual cases um, and, I guess, finding a way for those fishermen to adapt to the new situation. Well, yeah, we were, um, helped the Oaks River Institute helped uh, the sea change up in Westeros where okay. uh, they, they saw this um, dredger working a, a part of the marine protected area that, um, you know, was, was recovering and then it was just torn to shreds. And so they reported it and mm -hmm. uh, eventually the minister closed it because he had enough evidence that this was wrong. And it was just yeah. one one boat. And... The guy still has his boat, and he, he's able to, 
I think he's stepping back for other reasons, but he, he's certainly capable of, of fishing other areas. Uh, in that one instance, which was a lot of publicity, it, you know, made the, the newspapers, uh, the Press and Journal and so forth. Yeah, yeah, um, I heard about know. it, yeah. Yeah, um, but in that one case, um, they were, you know, that fisherman is not put out of business by that closure. Uh, but we have the same problem here in America where the um, President Obama just, create, just created a uh, national marine monument, like a, like, it's like a marine protected area uh, okay. for the three canyons off of Georgia's banks and um, uh, four seamounts. And the exception is that he's permitting lobstermen to continue because, like you said, you've got ranchers and lobstermen and creelers are like trappers. They lower the trap down, and the animal climbs in, and they collect their traps. So, mm. that, so this is the first time since 1916 the National Parks was created that a user is allowed to stay in there. Um, and yet, you know, some of the conservationists were coming up to me and saying, why did these people cave and give away to the fisheries when, no, the problem is dredging and, and longlining uh, not not this 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 artisanal uh, kind of fishing okay. industry. So it's important that in our case it was the conservationist, but in, in your case it was the fishermen giving up two percent, which wasn't a big deal, but just the dogma just got so heated. And of course the oh, fishermen yeah. in America are suing the government for doing this to them. When in in truth the uh, threat was that the seamounts are rich in rare earth minerals that the solar cell industry, solar panel industry wants to mine because they don't uh, want to okay. pay Piper in China doing it there. And so yeah, there was yeah. a big threat that there would be mountaintop mining, and yet the newspapers here covered it as conservationists versus fishermen, and, and who won and nobody won because the fishermen are not 100% out. Or, you know, it's like, mm, yeah. yeah. So uh, it, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to explain it in, in and what's happening in the UK uh, because um, the similarities are very striking. And, um, oh, for but, sure. Um, oh, my gosh. And that's about the time we have here. So, um, uh, Skyler, uh, well, um, Bryce, it, uh I, I think you covered it. Is there a closing comment you want to make about scallops in Scotland or in the UK? I think, well, sh should I give my contact details if anyone has any questions? Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. Yes, please. Uh, it's uh, best place is Twitter. So at BD underscore stew, S-T-E-W. Uh, and if you send me a message there or follow me, you'll hear plenty about scallops. Oh, and then uh, there's an international uh, scallop uh, meeting coming up in April. Skylar, what's the details on that? Or what's yeah, it's it's the 21st International Pecanid Workshop, and um, they're held every other year. So there's been a lot of these, um, and it's from April 19th to 25th uh, in Portland, Maine. And I'll be there. Bryce will hopefully be there, and uh, I will a be lot there. of really... I'll do my very yeah. best. <laughs> Whether Don't by plane or red, still there. So um, we will uh, we'll be there, and a bunch of wonderful scallop experts from all across the world will be there. Um, Skyler, thank you for taking the time to talk about the blue-eyed bay scallops and mostly the, sea, the giant sea scallops of me. <laughs> You're welcome, Rob. <laughs> and Bryce, thank you for talking about uh, the UK and the giant sea scallops. Oh, uh, no, the West, the King Scallop. <laughs> King Scallop, yeah, yeah. No, my pleasure. It's been a lot of fun.
And that's all the time we have for Lawyers Environmental Dialogues. For all of you listening, thank you for listening. And please, take care of yourself, and then take a moment to help take care of this planet, including the oceans. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then. Yeah.